My name is Jamie Borchik. I'm a partner here at Rogers Park, and it's great to be with you all this morning. Thanks for joining us. If, uh, if you're new, if it's your first time here, we love having you in the house, so thanks for being here. I want to begin this morning with a question. I brought a little friend with me to help. I want to ask this morning, when you look in this mirror... What do you see? Give you a minute to think about it. When you look in this mirror, what do you see? Come back to this in a little while. So over the past month, we followed the exploits of this runaway prophet named Jonah. And this morning, we come to the end. So far, Jonah has run from God. He's been tossed into the sea. He's been saved by this huge fish. He's written a beautiful poem. He's been puked onto a beach. And uh, finally, he's delivered God's message to his very own enemies. And then he's seen the whole city of Nineveh repent. So we finished last week. And this morning... The story comes to its climax in Jonah chapter 4. You need chapter 4 to understand the point of the whole book of Jonah. While there are important lessons throughout the whole book, the book as a whole doesn't work without chapter 4. It's only when we rightly understand chapter 4 that we can rightly understand the whole of Jonah. So on that note, I'd like all who are able to stand... And listen this morning as I read Jonah chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it grow up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. As we look at this story this morning, we're going to see a confession and two lessons. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that as we look at this story today, that you would give us grace to see what you have for us, that we would understand it rightly, that we would hear your voice speaking to us, and that you would rightly uh, order our hearts and our desires, our cares and our pursuits, that we would honor you in every way. Would you speak this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. So first, let's look at a confession. Look at verses 1 to 4. In the book of Jonah, only two characters are actually ever named. Throughout the story, we meet many other characters, but only two of them have names. Jonah and the Lord. And in chapter 4... They're finally brought into dialogue with one another in an artfully crafted back and forth conversation. Each time Jonah speaks, what he says is actually matched by an identical number of Hebrew words in what God says in response. And so down to the literary level, this final chapter brings Jonah and the Lord into proximity to one another in order to highlight the stark contrast between them. The scene begins with Jonah all bent out of shape. Back in chapter 1, we saw Jonah run away. But until now, we haven't been told why. In verse 2, we find out because Jonah tells us. In his anger, he prays to the Lord and basically says, God, this is why I went to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you would forgive Nineveh, and I don't want Nineveh to be forgiven. Jonah is ticked off here. He's ticked off that God hasn't wiped out his enemies in Nineveh. In fact, you might have a little footnote in your Bible that shows this, but the first part of verse 1 could more literally be, literally be translated as it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. God showing mercy to Nineveh is evil to Jonah. Jonah hated Nineveh. Nineveh was a leading city in ancient Assyria. And the Assyrians were foreigners who looked different, worshipped different gods, and relied on terrorism to build their evil empire. The Assyrians systematically tortured, pillaged, and plundered their enemies, including Jonah's people in Israel. They did evil things. They'd impale whole cities on stakes outside of the town. They'd cut off body parts and build piles of them. They would... Later on, a generation after Jonah, they would chain rebellious kings to bears. And as one of my seminary professors noted, the bears of Assyria were undefeated, unlike the bears of Chicago. (laughs) In short, Assyria was an evil empire. The Assyrians were Jonah's enemies. And God just let them off the hook. So Jonah doesn't like it. And look at his rationale in verse 2. He's angry because he says, 
I knew, God, that you are a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger and you're abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is Jonah's confession. Jonah is mad because he knew who God is and he knew what would happen if and when God's message got to Nineveh. Now, Jonah's confession of God's character isn't something that he just came up with on the spot. He gets it from God's self-revelation to Moses back in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And that text in Exodus is actually one of the most significant passages in the whole of Scripture. It's one of the texts that is most frequently cited by other parts of Scripture going through the whole Bible. And Jonah grabs four of the key attributes of God from that text as a summary statement of who God is. And so I want to walk quickly through these terms so that we're clear what Jonah is saying about God. First, he says that God is gracious. The word gracious here means that God gives undeserved favor to people. This is his common grace. It's the fact that God gives good gifts to people, even when we don't deserve them. Like a beautiful sunrise over Lake Michigan. Like the weather over the course of this week. Anyone can see and enjoy these things. Like the food we eat and the water we drink and the air we breathe. Like watching LeBron James hit ridiculous game winners. These gifts are available to anyone and everyone, regardless of whether you're righteous or wicked. They're God's common grace given to humanity to enjoy. And God is a gracious God who gives those good gifts to us. The second thing Jonah says is that God is merciful. The word merciful here means motherly compassion. It's the way that a mom takes care of her sick child. Popsicles and cartoons and back rubs. God is merciful. He cares for his people. The third thing is that he's slow to anger. So many of us are quick to anger. We're cruising down Lakeshore having a great day, listening to some family-friendly music on K-Love, when all of a sudden somebody cuts us off and some not-so-family-friendly language comes out of our mouths. Right? We're quick to anger. But God's not like that. He's slow to anger. And finally, and, and most importantly here, God is abounding in steadfast love. Now this term, steadfast love, it's a word that if you pay attention to it, it shows up all over the Bible, especially throughout the Old Testament. Watch for it and you'll see it. It's this incredibly important concept. It's perhaps the defining attribute of how God relates to his people. Steadfast love is God's never failing, never giving up, always and forever love. It's his covenant loyalty love. It's the kind of love, in some ways, that, that a parent has for a child. Like, no matter what your kid does, you're committed. When they're young, we've got a lot of young parents here, right? And when you're young, all your kid does is eat and sleep, cry and poop. That's life with young kids. When they're newborns, they can't even hug you back, let alone say thanks for wiping up my blowout diaper. <laughs> but you'd give anything and everything for them anyway, right? And when they get older, 
no matter how delinquent they turn out to be, you're still committed. You love that kid. You do anything for them because they're yours. And that's just a small taste of God's steadfast love for us. He never gives up. He never fails. He's always committed. He abounds in steadfast love. This is God's character. And this is who Jonah knew God to be. And to all of that, Jonah adds relenting of disaster. Now that little line is not in the Exodus passage, but Jonah's thinking about what has just happened to his enemies in Nineveh. This gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love God has just relented of disaster and forgiven his enemies. And that's Jonah's problem here. Jonah doesn't want God to relent of disaster for them. Jonah wants God to judge them. Jonah wants God to wipe them out. He wants them to pay for the evil they've done. But God is a God of steadfast love who longs for even his enemies to turn back to him. This is Jonah's confession of who God is. And this is who God is. And that's why he does what he does next in the story. In verses 5 through 8, God shows that he still has an important lesson to teach Jonah. Jonah leaves the city and he heads out into the desert to wait out the 40 days to see what's going to happen. In his original prophecy in Nineveh, he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And so Jonah, even though the people have repented, Jonah's still hopeful that God's going to wipe them out. So as Jonah heads east, he, he heads out into the Mediterranean sun. We're talking about the area of modern-day Mosul, Iraq. The city itself sits along the banks of the Tigris River. And Jonah gets out there, and east of the city is desert. He gets out there, and he builds himself this little inadequate hut to protect himself from the sun. But God, being merciful and gracious, appoints this plant to grow up and provide shade for him. Text literally says to save him from evil, from his evil. Because of this plant, Jonah, for the first time in the story, first time in the whole book, Jonah is happy. Verse 6 says that he was exceedingly glad. His exceeding anger in verse 1 has now turned to exceeding joy in verse 6 because now Jonah is comfortable. But the next morning, God pulls the plug on Jonah's little AC unit. The plant withers and a scorching wind comes and Jonah just wants to die. Earlier, Jonah questioned God's right to deliver. Now he questions God's right to destroy. Earlier, Jonah was ticked off about God saving Nineveh. Now he's ticked off about God wrecking his precious little plant. And it's in this moment that the key lesson of the book of Jonah the two key lessons of the book of Jonah come into focus. Look at verses 10 and 11. From these verses and from the whole of this book, two key lessons emerge. And both of them are rooted in who God is, as revealed in Jonah's confession earlier in the passage. The first lesson is this. Because of who God is, God cares. 
In these final verses, God says to Jonah, you pity the plant, but I pity Nineveh, that great city. The word pity here is a word that means to be troubled about, to have compassion for, to genuinely care for something. Jonah cares about a plant, but God cares about people. The contrast could not be more stark. Jonah cares about this plant, a plant that he didn't even plant. He didn't work for it. He didn't help it to grow. It popped up one night and perished the next day. This plant makes Jonah exceedingly happy. This is what Jonah cares about. But God cares about Nineveh, that great city. In Hebrew, the term that great city is literally a great city to God. God sees Nineveh as a city that matters. He cares about the city. And he cares about the city for two reasons that we see in the passage. First, he cares about it because he planted it. The implication of what God says to Jonah is that while Jonah didn't labor for the plant, God did labor for Nineveh. The God who in the book of Jonah is sovereign over everything. Sovereign over storms on the sea. Sovereign over great fish and plants and people. This God is also sovereign over cities. As the book of Acts put it, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and find him. God determines when and where people live. So God planted the plant for Jonah and he planted Nineveh for himself. That's true about our city too, by the way. God planted Chicago. You and I don't live here by accident. You're not here just because it's where you were born or where you came to school or where your family is or where you found a job. You're here because God puts you here so that you and all those around you might seek him and find him. God planted Chicago for himself and he cares about this city because he planted it. And he cares about the city, secondly, because of what's in it. In his question to Jonah in verse 11, God notes the sheer number of people and cattle in the city. The city is full of people and animals. Now, the final phrase, and also much cattle, might seem like a strange way to end the book. And so we need to ask the question, why is that in there? And the answer is really quite simple. It's because God is a huge fan of Chick-fil-A. Just playing. It's actually included here to emphasize to Jonah that even in purely human terms, the city is far more valuable than his plant. Cows are worth more than plants are. But the people are what really matter. Notice the contrast here. Jonah cares about one plant. God cares about more than 120,000 people. 
There are lots and lots of people in Nineveh, and those people don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, they're lost. They're spiritually and morally confused. On a spiritual and moral plane, they're like tourists who end up on Lower Wacker without a GPS. (laughs) And there are a lot of people like that around us today, too. We live in an incredibly confusing time, morally and spiritually. Things that were clearly right a decade ago are now seen as clearly wrong. And things that were clearly wrong a decade ago are now seen as clearly right. We're we're in the midst of a moral revolution and we live in a spiritually pluralistic and confusing society. Many of us are dizzy just from trying to figure out which way is which. And many others are depressed and discouraged from trying to find their way. Many around us have gotten lost in the confusion. But God sees it all. He sees confused, lost people, and he cares. That's why he sent Jonah to Nineveh. That's why he sends us to preach his word today. God cares about the city because of what's in it. And so as we look at this, these final verses, we see that God cares about the city, but Jonah only cares about his own comfort. These final verses of the book bring into stark relief the difference between God's cares and Jonah's cares. Remember that in this last verse, in verse 11, God is asking Jonah a question here. But no answer is given. Jonah doesn't respond, and the book ends with a question mark. And that's on purpose. I need to give us a little more context here so that we can really get this point. So track with me for a minute as I give you a little history lesson. The book of Jonah was originally written for the people of Israel who were still living under the shadow of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria had been this major threat to their safety and security for generations. But during the reign of Israel's king Jeroboam II, which you can read about in 2 Kings chapter 14, during the time of Jeroboam II, the Assyrians temporarily retreated to deal with some issues on the home front. And so for a few decades, there was a reprieve from their imperialistic advances and the pressure backed off of Israel. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, Jonah, the same Jonah we're studying today, that same Jonah, he shows up and he goes to King Jeroboam and he tells him to go and expand his territory, to go north and reclaim some lands that have been taken by Assyria. And Jeroboam does it. He restores these lands and builds the kingdom out farther. And as a result, because of this new territory, all sorts of goodies flooded into Israel. New lands under their control meant new riches and resources to be enjoyed by the people. The economy was booming. Times were good and everybody was getting paid. Accordingly, as we see in the books of Amos and Hosea, which were written at the same time as Jonah, they were his contemporaries. At that same time, there was rampant materialism in Israel. The questions they were wrestling with were no longer related to how do you survive the pressure of foreign invasion? But there were questions like, honey, should we build an addition on the back of the house or put in a pool? Should we get a vacation home in the mountains or at the beach? 
people had money and they were taking advantage of it and they were enjoying this lavish materialism. But as is often the case when a nation gets richer, much of the wealth that was enjoyed by the elites derived from the systematic oppression of the lower classes. Just like Jonah cared more about his precious plant than he did about the people of Nineveh, the people of Israel cared more about their material prosperity, the size of their house, the type of chariot they drove, the brand on their clothes, the neighborhood they lived in, the balance in their retirement account. They cared more about their stuff than they did about people. Amos and Hosea, if you read those books, are vicious in their attacks on the injustice and oppression that characterized Israel at this time. The rich were getting richer at the expense of the poor. The haves were taking advantage of the have-nots. And God was not cool with it. And the book of Jonah is written for those same people in that same situation. It's not a full frontal assault the way that Amos and Hosea are. It's more subtle, but it's just as powerful. The book of Jonah works like a mirror. It functions, this concluding question functions to show Israel their own disordered cares and to call them, to call them out for caring more about their stuff than about people. And it works the same way for us today. So I'll ask you again, as you look in this mirror, what do you see? The book of Jonah ends the way that it does to force us to look inward and to ask the question, what do we care about? So what do you care about? Another way to put it is what makes you exceedingly glad? If I'm honest, my answer to that question is sometimes kind of sad. Like I'll jump up and down and run around the living room with glee when my favorite team wins. Kinsey got me a new pair of Jordans for my birthday and I was pretty pumped up about that. I get excited about those things. What about you? A pay raise, a promotion, the number of likes on your Instagram post, an upcoming vacation, the season premiere of your favorite show, a little more square footage in your next apartment, a new car. What makes you exceedingly glad? The thing that makes God exceedingly glad is people. Jesus said that there is exceeding joy in heaven over one person who turns back to God. Imagine his joy when a whole city like Nineveh does it. What God cares about is people. I have a friend who lives in China, the most populous nation in the world. And he contends that China is the most beautiful place in the world. Despite the smog and often unbreathable air in his city, and despite the terrible pollution and overcrowding, despite the many dilapidated buildings and the vacant ghost cities elsewhere in the country, despite the persecution by the government, Despite all of that, he insists that China is the most beautiful place in the world. Not because of what it looks like, 
but because of the people. Scripture makes clear that people are the crown of creation, the thing that God cares about the most. And so my friend concludes that the place then with the most people must then be the most beautiful place in the world. Whatever you think of his logic, his instinct is right. People matter to God more than stuff, more than things, more than anything else in creation. People matter to God. God cares about people. And so we should too. Now this isn't to say that we shouldn't care at all about stuff. God doesn't tell Jonah not to pity the plant. He just points out that his pity for the plant is disproportionate to the real value of the plant. It's okay to care about how much you get paid or what your house looks like or how your favorite team did last night. It's just not okay to care more about those things than we care about people. And if we're honest, like Jonah and like Israel, our cares are so often disproportionate and disordered. So like the people of Nineveh, we need to repent of our evil of caring about the wrong things. And we need to ask God to help us care about what he cares about. So when you find yourself exceedingly angry about your stuff or exceedingly glad about your stuff, recognize it and call out to God like the people of Nineveh did and ask him to change your heart and to give you genuine care for people like his. And what this means really practically is a change in perspective. Embrace the truth that your family matters more than your hobbies. Your coworker, the person that sits next to you, matters more than your productivity. Your neighbors themselves, the people who live around you, matter more than whatever neighborhood you live in. Matters more than the size of your house or the structure you're in. The other passengers on the train, those people that that are in that aluminum car with you every morning when you go to work, they matter more than whatever you're doing on your phone. Change your perspective and embrace the truth that people matter more than stuff. So the first lesson of this chapter is to care about the city and to care about its people more than you care about your comfort and your stuff. And hear this this morning too. If you're here today and you're just checking out this church thing, you need to know that God cares about you. Even if you're far from God, even if you're like the people of Nineveh who had turned away from him and done evil, or even if you're like the runaway prophet Jonah who know, and you know exactly what God wants you to do, but you've been running away from it, You need to know this morning that God cares about you. He longs to know you no matter where you're at. He put you in this city. He brought you here into this place today because he loves you and he wants to know you and he wants you to get to know him. And so know this morning that God cares about you. Which leads to the second and final lesson. And I'll be brief here. But I think this is the major point that the book of Jonah as a whole is seeking to make. The final and major lesson is this. God is a gracious and compassionate God. 
And because of who he is, he cares. And because he cares, he pursues. This is why we've called this series in Jonah, The Pursuit. God's care translates into action in his pursuit of people. Throughout the book of Jonah, God is a pursuer. He sends a prophet to pursue his enemies in the evil city of Nineveh. He sends the same disobedient prophet along with a mighty tempest on the sea to pursue some pagan sailors to introduce them to him. He sends a fish to pursue his drowning prophet. And he himself goes to pursue Jonah even when he's sulking outside the city. In Jonah, God is a pursuer. And in life, God is a pursuer. The God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love is and always has been a pursuer. When Adam and Eve rejected him and rebelled against him in the garden, he went after them. He pursued them. He said, where are you? Come back to me. When his people were slaves in Egypt, he pursued them by sending Moses to go and get them and rescue them and lead them out of slavery into the promised land. When his people for generations, for centuries in Israel, rejected him and rebelled against him over and over again, he kept sending prophets like Amos and Hosea and Jonah to go and get them, to tell them, come back to me. I love you. I want you. And as the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, he pursued us by sending his son. The story of Jonah shows us the God who pursues people. And in that same way, Jonah points us to the greatest demonstration of all of God's pursuit. Jesus Christ came into the world and gave his life to pursue you and to demonstrate for you just how much God cares. Though we were his enemies, though we do evil like Nineveh, Though our cares are disordered like Israel, though we run from God like Jonah, despite all of that, even because of it, Jesus came to give his life in pursuit of people like us. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so if you didn't know it already, know it today. He loves you and he's pursuing you. And so as we finish this series in the book of Jonah, let me urge you to join with the people of Nineveh. Let me urge you to turn to this God to receive his grace, mercy, and steadfast love that he offers through Christ. God is a God who pursues, and he's pursuing you this morning. Let him catch you. Give him cause to celebrate and have exceeding joy when you turn to him. And for those of you who have already been caught, let me ask you once more, what do you see? What do you see? God sees precious people made in his image, the crown of creation, people who he cares about and people he is pursuing. And so because God has pursued you, Make it your mission in life to pursue people. Pursue others because God has pursued you. So many of you do this so well already. That's why there are all these people here in this room today. 
And ultimately, every last one of us is here because someone did that for us. Someone cared and pursued us. And so we need, on the whole, to care about people. And that care needs to show up in our pursuit of people. So pursue those who are foreign to you to be a friend to them. Because God pursued you to be a friend even when you were foreign to him. Pursue your enemies to offer forgiveness and to work toward reconciliation. Because God pursued you to do the same when you were his enemy. Pursue those who are far from God because God pursued you. He sent his son from heaven to earth to chase you down. Pursue your neighbor because God planted you right next to them. In all of life, pursue others to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to bring them to the God who loves them and desires to know them. I'll finish with this final thought. The book of Jonah ends with a question and no answer is given. But I think we actually know the answer. I'm speculating, of course, but I think we know the answer because how would we know this story if Jonah didn't tell it to us? I think that in the end, Jonah got it. God cared about Jonah and pursued him and helped him to see his own disordered cares. And Jonah got the point. And eventually Jonah got caught and he turned back to God and then he wrote this book so that we could do the same. So one last time, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? My hope is that we see the people all around us and that we, we, like God, will care about them and pursue them. May that be our reputation and our legacy as a church. And as we do that, may we share in God's exceeding joy as many in our community turn to him. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. May we be the same. Gracious God, merciful God, God of steadfast love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace, we praise you this morning. Thank you that you have cared about us and you have pursued us. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us people who do the same in the world around us. Would we be faithful to you and would we go out into the city to show your care and pursuit? And would you use us to bring many to turn back to you? For, for your glory and for your exceeding joy, we pray. Amen.